night, and that first butchered body. Yes, to dredge it all up and put it finally before the public. That's the way. It's been concern about public reaction that's forced us to keep the story secret for so many years. Theater knew that the American people were not ready to hear the truth at the time. I wonder if they are now. Kreitzler doubts it. I told him I intended to write the story, and he gave me one of his sardonic chuckles and said that it would only frighten and repel people, nothing more. The country, he declared tonight, really hasn't changed much since 1896. We're all still running, according to Chrysler. In our private moments, we Americans are running just as fast and fearfully as we were then, running away from the darkness we know to lie behind so many apparently tranquil household doors, away from the nightmares that continue to be injected into children's skulls by people whom nature tells them they should love and trust, running ever faster and in ever greater numbers towards those potions, powders, priests, and philosophies that promise to obliterate such fears and nightmares and ask in return only slavish devotion. Can Kreitzler truly be right? But I wax ambiguous. To the beginning, then. An ungodly pummeling on the door of my grandmother's house at 19 Washington Square North brought first the maid and then my grandmother herself to the doorways of their bedrooms at two o'clock on the morning of March 3, 1896. I lay in bed in that no longer drunk yet not quite sober state which is usually softened by sleep, knowing that whoever was at the door probably had business with me rather than my grandmother. I burrowed into my linen-cased pillows, hoping that he'd just give up and go away. Mrs. Moore, it's a fearful racket. Shall I answer it then? You shall not. Wake my grandson, Harriet. Doubtless he's forgotten the gambling debt. Then I heard footsteps heading toward my room and decided I'd better get ready. Since the demise of my engagement to Miss Julia Pratt of Washington some two years earlier, I'd been staying with my grandmother, and during that time the old girl had become steadily more skeptical about the ways in which I spent my off hours. I had repeatedly explained that as police reporter for the New York Times, I was required to visit many of the city's senior districts and consort with some less-than-savory characters— but she remembered my youth too well to accept that admittedly strained story. My homecoming deportment on the average evening generally reinforced her suspicion that it was state of mind, not professional obligation, that drew me to the dance halls and gaming tables of the Tenderloin every night, and I realized, having caught the gambling remark just made to Harriet, that it was now crucial to project the image of a sober man with serious concerns. I shot into a black Chinese robe, forced my short hair down on my head and opened the door loftily just as Harriet reached it. Ah, Harriet, no need for alarm. I was just reviewing some notes for a story and found I needed some materials from the office. Doubtless that's the boy with them now. I went quickly but cautiously to the bottom of the staircase where I realized that in fact I knew the voice that was calling for me but couldn't identify it precisely. Nor was I reassured by the fact that it was a young voice some of the most vicious thieves and killers I'd encountered in the New York of 1896 were mere striplings. Mr. Moore? The young man added a few healthy kicks to his knocks. I must talk to Mr. John Schuyler Moore. I stood on the black and white marble floor of the vestibule, one hand on the lock of the door. Who's there? It's me, sir. Stevie, sir. I breathed a slight sigh of relief and unlocked the heavy wooden portal. 
Outside, standing in the dim light of an overhead gas lamp, the only one in the house that my grandmother had refused to have replaced with an electric bulb, was Stevie Taggart, the Steve Pipe, as he was known. In his first eleven years, Stevie had risen to become the bane of fifteen police precincts. But he'd then been reformed by, and was now a driver and general errand boy for, the eminent physician and alienist, my good friend, Dr. Laszlo Kreitzler. Stevie leaned against one of the white columns outside the door and tried to catch his breath. Something had clearly terrified the lad. Stevie, what's happened? His long sheet of straight brown hair was matted with sweat. Looking beyond him, I saw Kreitzler's small Canadian calash. The cover of the black carriage was folded down, and the rig was drawn by a matching gelding called Frederick. The animal was, like Stevie, bathed in sweat, which steamed in the early March air. The doctor says you're to come with me right away.